Well, take your Bibles and open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me tell you what I'm going to do this morning, which is to put a little bit of a capstone on our study of the church that we've done over the month of July, over the last five weeks. I'm so grateful for the men who came and who delivered sermons, uh, many of which I was able to tune into uh, through the live stream. And very grateful for live stream. This would be unheard of just a few years ago for me to be sitting in Paris, France, and then listen to the worship and express my love to Christ with you from around the world is remarkable. But in hearing those messages and hearing you interact, it made me want to join in the, in the fray of talking about the theology of the church. I'm so, so thankful for these men, the gifts that they have in their articulation of these texts for us to consider. And over the last five weeks, I have not only heard about, but I want to confess that I've heard many of you speak about this series and points in this series And I've heard and heard of many conversations about the church and her mission, specifically our church and our mission. And that's exactly what we prayed for. When we decided on this, I don't know, a year ago, Bob, we said what we want to do is shake it up, get different expositors to come and look at the texts. Give us some perspective to look at the church in a way that's fresh and engaging and new. And in wanting to join this this series... (laughs) I have to confess that I understood a little bit of what Spurgeon said. He, you know, he studied all week and then on Saturday night would decide what he was going to preach on. And he said, every time I came to the study, I would, I would look at the, um, uh, I would open my Bible and all the verses of the Bible were raising their hands saying, Mr. Spurgeon, pick me, pick me. Well, I felt like that with regards to the church. When I was thinking of what text can I choose to be a, a bit of an addition to what we've already learned, there were dozens Dozens of texts I thought about. But one had a significant gravitational pull on my own heart for my own understanding and for my own edification, and that is here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. We're going to look at a snapshot of life in the church. And Paul gives it to young Timothy here in three simple verses. Let me read that for us to set it in our minds for expositing. Verse 14, Paul says, I am writing these things to you. I'm hoping to come to you soon, before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and the support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. Why did we choose to have a series on the church when we had so many theological options? And there's a reason for that. 
And that is, I'm convinced that there are few institutions more misunderstood than the church. We might expect that misunderstanding from the world. In fact, we see it and hear it all the time. Some think the church, at least from the worldly perspective, some think of the church as a social club. It's an alternative to the world where people who can't act worldly get together to act unworldly or otherworldly. It's a social alternative to the world, just kind of a, a, a club of clean living. Other people think that the church is, is the place where hypocrites collect. Anytime I hear somebody say that, I say, you're right, and there's room for one more. Others think that we're a social action group. We're supposed to cure world hunger and solve the dilemma of AIDS. Others think we're a counseling center. Not necessarily a bad thing. They think if you need help, you go there, they can help you. I remember the time when uh, a Jewish rabbi told uh, a lady that she should talk to me, a pastor, not specifically me, a Christian uh, pastor, because... They, they are better equipped to help you with things like marriage and the family than, than we are as rabbis. Just what he said. Some think we're a welfare office. I can't remember a week or even a month that's gone by since I've been here at Mission Road or certainly when I was at other churches serving where someone doesn't show up at our church or call us needing and wanting help. They need gas, they need food, they need an electric bill paid. And when people in the church do that, when our membership does that, we're compelled to bear one another's burdens, right? And to help each other. But some people think that the church is the welfare for their needs. Can you just imagine, and we'll help whenever we can. We have filled many tanks with gas. We have taken many people to a restaurant or many people to the grocery store. We never, ever, 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 ever give out cash can you imagine if the church became a, an emotional ATM where if you had problems, you go to that place and you draw and extract cash? We wouldn't be in business very long, right? Some people think the church is like that. Other people think the church is, an, is a crutch. It's a crutch, an emotional crutch for weak people. And they're right. Aren't they? Isn't the church an emotional crutch, a spiritual crutch for weak people of whom we all belong? Sadly, some of these descriptions, some of these ideas actually seep into the thinking of people who are part of our church, part of the church in general, part of the, the, the greater church. Think about how you and I talk about church. We've talked about this a little bit before. Some people talk about, we go to church. What theology is revealed when we say, and we say it all the time, I said it this morning, what time are we going to church? I understand that, but when we say we go to church, what are we saying and what are we not saying? What are we assuming and what are we presuming about the church? Now certainly we go to the meeting of the church, but is church isolated to a place we go on a day we designate with people we know? Other times we say we attend church. And we do. But is it just a place where attendance is taken by the divine role keeper? Sometimes we talk about my church. 
There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just asking the theology that it might reveal. Because I say this is my church, this is where I go to church, this is where I attend church. I understand that. I'm not saying we shouldn't say that. But is it really our church? Is this my church? Some people say, well, that's Rick Holland's church. God forbid that it's Rick Holland's church. It's Christ's church, and I don't want to compete with him. It's not buildings and budgets, although it includes buildings and budgets. What is the church? If you were to be taken out to lunch this afternoon by an unbeliever, or better yet, you were to ask an unbeliever in your apartment building, your neighborhood, your dorm, any, and you were to go and have lunch with them, and they were to say to you, I know you go to church. What is the church? I see Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, this, that, and the other. What is the church? What's distinctive about your church? People pull into our church every week, many of whom see that we share a property line with another so-called church. What's the difference? Do you understand? Can you articulate? What I'm asking is, are you a faithful, knowledgeable, informed, and equipped ecclesiologist? Meaning, are you a theologian who understands the theology of church? Now, before you say, well, yes, I am, or no, I'm not, or um, could be better, you, you all are. We all are. We all demonstrate our ecclesiology. That's the doctrine of the church from ecclesia, church. You're all a theologian for the church. But how, how informed, how specific, how equipped are you regarding the bride of Christ, the church of the living God. I love how Samuel Stone framed it. We, we, read the, we sing these so fast. Just listen. Listen to the phrases here. You sing it all the time. You know it. The church's one foundation is, finish with me, Jesus Christ, her what? Lord. Think, think, think. She is his new creation. Then he alludes to John chapter 3, by water and the word. Then these next two lines, just marinate on these next two lines. From heaven, from heaven he came and he sought her. To be his what? What? Holy bride. (laughs) With his own blood, he bought her, us. And for her life, he died. Over the past month, we have heard much about the church. We're going to extend the series one more week. We could spend the rest of our existence not exhausting all that God says about the church. But one of my prayers, one of my chief concerns as one of your elders and pastors is that we here at Mission Road Bible Church grow in our ecclesiology. We become better theologians about what we believe about ourselves, Christ's holy bride. As I said, if you're a believer, you're an ecclesiologist. The question is, what kind and how good ecclesiologist are you? Now, let's sum up where we are. This is 1 Timothy, which is one of the pastoral epistles. There are three, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, which are about ministry. I would often kind of 
attach 2 Corinthians, which is so much about the hardships of ministry. Those four books inform us about the philosophy of ministry that we're to have more than any books in the, in the Bible and certainly in the New Testament. Paul is writing to Timothy. He founded and pastored the church at Ephesus for three years and he handed it over to Timothy. Now, I'm not intending to disagree with any of the, the pastors or, or preachers or sermons that you've heard before, but maybe to add a little bit to that. We often hear, I've heard Joel say, and I don't disagree with him, we send our best. Not always. Paul saved Timothy for that church in Ephesus. And he stayed till he died. So we send great, faithful men and women. But I'm not sure that we designate best, better, and worst. We send the faithful Sometimes we send our best, but more often we commission our best for greater service and opportunities where they are. And when God pulls their hearts somewhere else, we go with them with our support. The pastoral epistles were given for our instruction. They were given for our understanding of the church. And it was a leadership manual given to church leaders, listen, so that the whole church could hear the manual for church leaders, listen, so the church leaders would be accountable to the church for their leadership. There's nothing secret about church leadership. Elders' meetings aren't held behind closed doors with candles and weird music and incense, and we, we uh, fold our legs and, and uh, you know, circle our, our fingers so that we can have some kind of mystical experience. Not at all. We're simply trying to do the pastoral epistles. Now, in looking at that, trying to pull our, our series together, we're going to look very quickly, very briefly, and, and I mean that because each of the points we're going to look at demand multiple weeks to understand, to apply, to be implicated by. But I want to find with you in this passage these three verses, three targets for becoming a more faithful church member, three targets to aim for, three targets for becoming a more faithful church member. Let's look at the verse together. Responsible obedience to biblical authority. Responsible obedience to biblical authority. Verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. Now, we do this sometimes in an email or a letter. We'll say, the purpose of my writing. Paul is certainly doing this, but he's doing more than that. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you with the self-knowledge that what he was writing was going to be canonized as divine scripture. He had an awareness of what he was writing that was different than what you and I write. I'm writing these things to you. It's not as if we didn't know that. Of course he's writing these things to us. Timothy knew he was writing these things to him. If I wrote a letter and I uh, wrote it to Brian and I said, Brian, dear Brian, I am writing this to you. There's a high school word for that. Duh. I, I get that. Of course you are. But Paul is saying, I want you to know that I am aware that I am writing this and God is inspiring it and I am ordained to canonize this as so important as if to be recorded forever as a testimony to how to organize and order and lead the church. He's writing with divine authority. Therefore, he can issue commands and imperatives 
that, that I couldn't. I was talking with a men's group on Tuesday, and uh, one of the brothers was saying, you know, does discipleship, is a great point, does discipleship involve you telling people things that's outside the scripture? No, it can't. It can mean giving an opinion. We, we teach and we shepherd according to what the Bible says, all the Bible says, and what? No more than what the Bible says. I can encourage you and tell you with divine authority, husbands love your wife. I can't tell you with divine authority, buy that house or buy that other house. Paul understood that, and he said, the things that I'm talking to you about have divine authority, and they're regarding something very, very specific and very important. He gives an, a little personal adage there. He longs to be back with them at the church. Let me just tell you, after being away for four weeks from our precious church body, I understand and empathize a little bit with Paul. I, on Sundays, I just felt like a lost little puppy. I, I, this is where I want to be. When I get to travel and preach or teach, it, I, I'm never as happy and satisfied and fulfilled as when I'm here at Mission Row with, with my brothers and sisters that God has collected in this place to worship him with each other. Paul understands that. He says, I want to be there. But he says, it might be a problem. Verse 15, he says, it's, I'm sorry, it's not funny, but it's humorous at some level. In case I'm delayed... Have you read the book of Acts? <laughs> In case I'm delayed, he was delayed every time. His sermons were longer than he planned. Remember that? His ministry was longer than he planned. His mission was longer and larger than he planned. And sometimes it was shorter than he planned. Remember at Lystra? He planned on having a ministry there at Derby and Lystra. He goes in, goes to the synagogue, and they take him out, beat him to the point of death, leave him in a ditch, and he goes on to the next city. Wasn't much of a delay there. But more often than not, he went and he stayed and he stayed and he stayed. He says, if I'm delayed, what I'm saying is so important, I need to write it down so you have it sooner rather than later. What is it? I write so that you will know how, to, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That's the church. We'll look at that in a moment. I can't wait till I get there if it's a month, two, three, four, six, next year. I can't wait to tell you how important it is for you to understand how to act and conduct yourself within the church, within the household of God, and how you're to instruct others to do the same. That was so important it couldn't wait for him to be face to face. He had to write it down and send it on ahead of him. His focus is right and proper conduct in the church. We'll see in a moment. That's the first and prioritized target of our sanctification and our Christian living is how and why we do it with the people of God. How we live and operate and minister with the people of God. But this whole introduction is really a hat tip to, to biblical authority. I'm not going to be there, but what I write has as much authority as if I, the apostle, were there myself. And God would canonize 1 Timothy, so he had an awareness that God was doing something in his writing that's different, has biblical authority. So we should listen to what God says about his church, shouldn't we? There's a second target for becoming a more faithful church member in verse 15. 
Responsible understanding of the church. This is in the middle of verse 15. Responsible understanding of the church. We have to conduct ourselves rightly where, and now we get into these three descriptors of the church. We're going to take them one at a time very quickly. First, the church is fathered by God. He says, conduct yourself in the church, in the household of God, which is fathered by God. Where do we get that? It says, in the household of God. In the household of God means God's household. It's meant of a, of a living place, a dwelling. And in that living place, in that dwelling, it was, it was operating under the authority and the wisdom and the shepherding of a father. God calls the church his house, his immediate, not even extended, his immediate family, his children. And he is the father. We are a part of his household. Now, before we dive into that, I just want you to take a, a sweet, deep breath of biblical metaphors. Um, the New Testament talks about the church in so many ways. Just let me, let me give you a, a dozen or 14, just very briefly. The church is called a new race, Galatians 6, Ephesians 2. A body, a human body, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. A bride, 2 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5. An army in Ephesians 6. A holy priesthood in 1 Peter 2 and Revelation 1. A holy nation, 1 Peter 2 says. A golden lampstand, Revelation 1 says. A loaf of bread, John 12 says. God's field, 1 Corinthians 3 tell us, tells us a, vine, a vineyard, John 15 informs us, a sheepfold, says John 10, 1 Peter 2, a temple, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2 talk about, a city, Philippians chapter 3, Hebrews 12, and a family, Galatians 6, Ephesians 2, 1 John 2, and here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says it's important that you know how to act in the household of God. Now, you're, if you're smart, and I know you are, and you're observant, and I know you are, you would say, well, why in the household of God? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we pay attention to our conduct out in the world? Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Listen carefully. So then while we have the opportunity, Paul tells the Galatians, let us do good to all people especially to those who are, same word, of the household of God. Is that not clear? We're to, we're to think about our conduct with, with everyone, anyone, but especially within the household of God. We've looked at before that, that passage in 1 Corinthians where there's this really strained dinner that a man has with, with two neighbors. One is a Christian brother who's very fresh in the Lord and has a sensitive conscience. The other is an unbeliever, and the unbeliever is the one hosting, and he serves meat offered to idols. And you have a decision, Paul says, do you offend the believer whose conscience is bothered by this and say, shut up, eat. This is for the sake of the evangelism. Or do you look at the unbeliever and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this because this bothers his conscience. You know what Paul says, surprisingly? Offend the unbeliever. Why would he say that? Jesus answered that. John chapter 13. They will know you love me when you love them. No. When you love who? One another. 
The church is the household of God where God is transcendent and imminent. The transcendence and imminence, how far God is above us and away from us, that's transcendence. Imminence is how close he is that we can never outrun near us. The church is where his transcendence and his nearness, his imminence come together. It's easy for us to think we're here, God's up there, out there, way, way, way beyond the third galaxy to the left, somewhere transcendent. And we're down here, somewhere we'll be with No, it's the household of God where he's the father. Get this, right now, he is in every seat in this auditorium. You say, well, I'm in my seat. Exactly. You do believe in the permanent abiding indwelling of God, don't you? Can we just pause? Do you believe God is here now? But do you believe that God is only here because we're together? His omniscience and his omnipresence are given particular attention when the household of God meets. Why? Look at the next, this next descriptor, letter B. The, the church belongs to God. It's his. This next phrase, which is the church. Don't miss this, what we call a genitive of possession in the Greek. An ownership. That of means possession, ownership. The church of the living God. The living God owns the church. It's his household. His place of unique and special dwelling. It belongs to him. Mission Road is not Rick's church. It's not your church. And I understand the strains of human language. Language. We don't, go, we don't say, look, I want you to come to that church I go attend. No, uh, it's not my church. It's not stranger. But we understand that it belongs to Christ. It belongs to God. She is God's possession. The focus here is possession by God. And the description is not just God, but that he's a living God. Anytime you see, look, maybe we should say every time you see the term living God, it's said in the context of dealing with what? Idolatry. Because idols are dead. They're not alive. The living God is. And we say, oh, those poor people dealing with all that idolatry way back then. Rocks they would carve. Sticks they would carve. Idolatry is live, idolatry is live and well in this building, in your and my life this morning. Because idolatry is things we give time, resources, and attention to that elbow God out of our use of our time, resource, and attention. That's an idol. If you or, our, if you or I cast our attention on the flaws of the leaders and the people in our church, any church, I can promise you you will constantly be discouraged. I can also promise you that every leader you get close to, you will see more flaws and problems. But when we remember that the church is God's, something changes in our perspective. Our service belongs to him. Our giving is to him. Our attendance is with him. Our singing is with and for and to him. Our listening to his word is hearing him. He is the focus. A third glance here is, is stewards God's word. 
so we understand the church. We're, this is almost unspeakable. It's almost, it's, if I can quote David, it's too high, I cannot attain to it. <laughs> because, because God has, can I bring you into the gravitational um, pull of this with me? God has given us his word and he says, stewards it, steward it. The church is the pillar and the support of the truth. Where is God's truth? Divine revelation in his word, articulated specifically in the gospel. It's likely that Paul is using the temple of Artemis here, whether you're talking about the Roman God or the Greek God, temple of Artemis or Diana, there in Ephesus, one of the spectacular buildings in the ancient Near East, it was a temple supported by 127 gold-plated marble temples. Mar- marble uh, pillars, rather. And, and, and these pillars you could see for miles away, glistening in the sun. Some people said they would, cover, they would come over the ridge, coming into Ephesus, and they would be blinded by the glowing jewel of this temple and these pillars. What did they do? They supported the massive and beautiful and gilded ceiling and roof. But they were also built on the ground, on rock, on foundation. That was, by the way, level to an extent that modern engineering can't even get to today. You read the article last week of the giant office building in San Francisco, this listing, it's tilting. Not exactly sure what to do with it or how to shirt up, but it wasn't built on a firm what? Foundation. Paul, he tells Timothy, the church, this is humbling. This is frightening. The church is the pillar and the support of the truth under which you dwell, under which you worship. The church supports it. The church is the steward of God's word. That's why we teach God's word in our nursery, in our children's, in our junior high, high school, college, singles, married, young married, old married, anyone, pulpit. We want to be stewards of God's word and teach verse by verse what it says. It's a frightening reality that we're the pillar and support of the truth. As I've said, each of these could be inexhaustible in our attention. And this is the case with this third target for becoming a faithful church member. And I'm only going to briefly describe this, and you'll see why when we get into it. It is worthy of a multiple-week series of study. But it involves responsible allegiance to our confession. Responsible allegiance to what we believe, to our confession. Now, you've heard people talk about confessional churches. There's a lot of d- discussion today about, are you a confessional church? If someone asks you, are you a confessional church? They may mean, do you hold 1689, the Baptist Confession? Do you hold the Westminster Confession? Do you and, and your answer should be simply this. Yes, we are a confessional church. You say, what does that mean? We have a doctrinal statement. We have put together something that we say, this is the doctrine discerned and exegeted from God's word that we believe. We hold to that confession. This is what we confess we believe. So Paul says, by common confession. Let me ask you a question. 
Do you see the doctrine of church membership in that phrase? You should. By common confession, meaning Paul understood that there was some official mechanism, some way to recognize that the body and the church leadership believe the same thing. That is, in effect, church membership. It's a commitment of a body to church leaders and a church leaders to shepherd the body all under the lordship of Christ. You have to have some way of measuring common confession. So we have membership in our interview. One of the main questions is, have you read what we teach? Have you read our doctrinal statement? And are there any areas in which you disagree, in which you can't commonly confess with us? Now, some of those are, are uh, of a second-tier theology. By second-tier, I don't mean less important. I just mean we can still worship together and fellowship together and minister together. We not, may not believe on every single jot and tittle of every single nuance of every single theological perspective, but in the large, we confess the same things. What would it mean if we had an ecumenical church where anybody could believe anything and anyone could stand here and say anything and it didn't mean anything? It would mean Nothing. By common confession, that's why we are so committed to church membership. Because church membership is just a commitment between each other and leaders and the body that we believe the same things and are accountable to the same things. That's what church membership is. It's not some you know, uh, Masonic temple club. By common confession, to make sure we have a common confession, that's why we have church membership, and he says, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, I don't have time to, t- to go into all this. The mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness is attached to the conduct we live in in the church. He just said, pay attention to the conduct that you have in the household of God. Make sure that everyone knows how to live. And that's a mystery of godliness. And when you see mystery, that's always somehow in the New Testament referencing the gospel, which is the source of our Christian conduct. So he goes on. He, stop right there. The gospel and the mystery of, con, uh, of our godliness. And it doesn't begin with it. It doesn't begin with a doctrine. It doesn't begin with an abstraction. It begins with one pronoun you ought to have circled in your Bible. He. He. Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him. He is our message. So it goes right into it. He was revealed in the flesh. By the way, these are six statements with three couplets talking about the revelation of Christ, the witness of Christ, the reception of Christ. Let me just touch these. The church is about Jesus. He was revealed in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity became a man. We sing it at Christmas and we should sing it all year round. Veiled in flesh, the what? Godhead see. Who are we talking about? Hail the incarnate God, deity. He was revealed in the flesh. Justified or vindicated, announced, credentialized by the Spirit or in the Spirit. He opens hearts to see that Jesus is the Lord and the Savior Seen by angels. This is just a magnificent. Seen by angels in his pre-incarnate condition. Seen by angels in his current condition. 
in its pre-incarnate position, in its current position, seen by angels. Who can say that? An eternity past, an eternity future. Proclaimed among the nations, there's the Great Commission. He is our message. We don't have a message. We have a person that we're proclaiming, not just a theology. Believed on in the world. It's not just for the church. We take the Great Commission out and taken up in glory. We believe he was taken in glory. He sits alive at the right hand of the Father, nails in his side, his hands, his feet, praying for you and me. We believe that, don't we? Such says book of Romans. Our allegiant confession begins and ends with him, he, he, he. The most important doctrine for us to grab, understand, and, and live by, I'm convinced, is our Christology. And you say, well, we started earlier saying, well, it's, it's ecclesiology. Where is, it, is our Christology shepherded and understood and framed and taught inside the church? He, he who was. These truths are about the narratives and the theology of Jesus. So, and how are we doing with these targets? How are you doing? How's your family doing? How are we doing? And the answer is, hopefully, better than I used to and not as good as I will. Is that fair? How are we going to hone our ecclesiology? Be deafeningly mind-focused, deliberate, and intentional on everything we do. A lot of discussion over the last few weeks. I'm so thankful for it. I think most of the discussion generated around, uh, you know, should we be planting churches? I thought a lot about that. I, I'm, I certainly want to plant churches. But when you plant a church, you export your ecclesiology. So, before we think about exporting our ecclesiology, how is our ecclesiology? My answer to that is not as good as it should be, but better than it was. And let's keep moving toward these targets. Can we together?